This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hey, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast, and I'm here today with Megan. Welcome, Megan. Hi, thanks for having me. Welcome from your, we're talking, I'm in Colorado, you're in Paris. That's super cool. <laughs> it is very cool. I love your architecture too in your, in your house. Looks very, um, very exotic. Uh, <laughs> starting to be like night, night and day, but that's the great thing about technology these days. Exactly. Um, so why don't you kind of take us back to the beginning in your journey? Like, why don't you take me back to sort of where it all started for you? What was your first drink, how old were you, stuff like that? Yeah, sure. So I, I'm from Baltimore, Maryland, originally. Um, I currently live in Paris, France. And, and I've, I've lived kind of all over. I lived in London. I lived in Chicago and LA and New York. Um, but I learned when I went to college in California that my childhood in Baltimore was quite, um, that we grew up quite fast, basically. And, and so I started drinking, I guess, when I was 12 years old. Um, and my first time getting drunk was actually with my babysitter. Um, and we went to a party with her. And um, I remember I lost my voice as well because I was, I was smoking cigarettes. And uh, it was, yeah, I thought it was just the, the cool thing to do. And, you know, my, um, my parents drank at home and um, it just... It was just kind of what what we did, and um, I went to an arts high school, and so we we drank quite a lot there. And um, and then in college, you know, it continued. And I would I would often brag that I could go out all night and drink, and and then I would be starring in a play or getting straight A's in college. You know, I was the um, I was a National Hispanic Scholar. I was a Dean Scholar. Uh, I was the rainforest uh, i was a spokesperson for the rainforest association you know it was like oh it was like, almost like i was like proud that i could uphold all these things um and then i guess i really started the first time i ever heard somebody declare that they had stopped drinking was i was in la and i was working in casting and i'll never forget this actress walked into the room and she came in and the director had knew her and so he was like oh my gosh you look so great like where have you been uh, have you, how have you been and she was like thanks like yeah I quit drinking and I remember I was like 25 and I just thought I was like wow somebody can just quit drinking like that's like a thing you know and and 25 so I was probably this was like 2007 or so and I remember that always stuck with me because it always I'd always had this you know, I, I love drinking and I was always the kind of the life of the party, but at the same time, I always yearned for like a freedom from it, but I just never knew that there was a possibility of some sort of like freedom. Um, oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Like I never, I just, the fact that somebody could just declare like, you're not an alcoholic, but she just stopped drinking. It was like, that just seemed right. like, and she wasn't ostracized and the guy, you know, it was, it was like, oh, okay. and. That was the first time I heard that. And, um, and then, you know, I, I actually uh, married an English guy. And so our relationship was very much based off around 
alcohol. It was very different with him because in America, you know, we, it was more about, you would drink a little bit kind of every night, but it wasn't. And for him, it was like, you wouldn't drink during the week because the point of drinking was just to get drunk. And that was like more of the culture in England was to, you know, you drank to get drunk, but you were considered an alcoholic if you drank during the week, <laughs> like in small doses. So, um, so then, you know, he got really judgmental with me if I would drink during the, during the week. And, and then I didn't understand why he had to get so hammered on the weekends. Um, and, and, but yet at the same time, when I wanted to stop drinking, that caused a really big problem in our relationship. So, um, and then my mom found your book, uh, a couple of years ago and I had just actually moved to Paris and I had really gotten into working out and getting in shape. And, um, cause I had basically, when I moved to London, I got really bad adult acne. I had gained like 30 pounds. Um, and it was, it was kind of like, because the other side of it was when I came to London, I thought, wow, this is a place where I can drink all I want and people are kind of proud of it. Like you go into work the next day and they talk about how bad their hangover is. And it's like, you know, nobody's ashamed of how drunk they get. It's kind of like a badge of honor. Um, so at first I was like, this is amazing. And so I kept, so I drank even more when I was in London. And then it was like, oh, my acne started coming out. I started, I gained all this weight. And, um, and so then when I got, I worked at the New York Times and when I moved, um, they moved me to Paris. That was when I was like, okay, I read your book and I'm going to, I'm going to stop drinking in Paris. It's like a whole new life for me. Um, so then I moved to, I moved to Paris and I decided to give up drinking. And my first dinner with my boss, um, my French boss, we, it was like five of us and he was like introduced me to everybody and, and I ordered water at the table and not thinking that, you know, I just moved from England and there it was really looked down upon if you didn't drink, but in Paris, I thought it would be different because they were more civilized, <laughs> so to speak. However, um, when basically when I ordered the water, he looked at me and said, uh, you're not pregnant, are you? Mm. And so I immediately was like, oh no, I'm definitely not pregnant. I ordered a glass of wine and I wanted to make sure that he knew that I was, you know, that there, there was no way I was, I was, I was going to be drinking. So or then there's no way that I was, I, he just moved me from London to Paris and that I was like pregnant, you know, so I wanted to prove to him that I wasn't. Um, so then I basically drank for another year and then I started getting again, really into the health kick. So I stopped for like three months here and three months there. Um, but then after three months I would start drinking again and I would gain the weight back. And it was just, it was like this vicious cycle. So it was actually finally in at Christmas this year where I decided for good that I was going to, I was going to stop. I'd actually given up smoking over Thanksgiving. Um, and then for Christmas, it was really, I had, I'd gone out to this house party at, you know, an expat house party. It was like all the strays. And I guess the other thing is that being an expat, we have quite a culture of drinking as well. Cause it's like, we always say that the expats, you're either running from something or like to something. And, <laughs> and so alcohol ends up being, being in that a lot. Um, 
And I had a friend who got just blacked out drunk and witnessing that for me was really a final straw where I was just like, I can't, I never want to be like that again. I want the freedom. Um, I started listening. I started taking the alcohol challenge in January. I'd already been like five days sober at that point. Um, And just, you know, and I've been, I've been sober ever since. And I started dating somebody who's also, he's um, also sober. So it's, it's been amazing. Um, my mom actually, after she read your book, she went sober as well for a couple of years. Um, and she's actually just getting back on it again, but I feel like this is for me, there's no going back. Um, I have so much I want to do in life. I have so much, you know, I want to accomplish and, uh, and alcohol just doesn't play into that at all. So yeah, it's so good. So cool. That's awesome. Um, I have a few kind of questions about some things that I, I just want to dig more into. So first of all, you got uh, drunk with your babysitter. So like, <laughs> can you tell me more about that? Like, was it the normal babysitter <laughs> or your parents like not knowing what was that? Like, I'm just so curious. I'm like, how does that happen? <laughs> yeah. So um, she was, I mean, she was a neighbor. I was I was probably, gosh, maybe I was like 10 or 11. Um, No, I'm trying to remember, you know, it may have been that she had been my babysitter and then she took me to a party that she was going to like, but maybe she, maybe she wasn't actually my babysitter at that point. Cause I feel like 11, I must've been like 11 or 12. and, and yeah, it was just, I think in, in Baltimore, it was just kind of like, just, Typical. yeah. <laughs> so interesting, yeah. Yeah, like drugs, no, I, alcohol, yeah. I feel like it was very, like, I didn't drink a lot, but I, re- I remember, I, I don't even remember, I think my first drink was right around 12. And ironically, I was with um, my cousin's dad, so I guess he would well, it was my second cousin. So it was my mom's cousin's son, I guess, is what it was. And we were on a camping trip and he, we, he had sent like all the kids on a camping trip with, um, I, we called him Uncle Nick. And we went hiking like way into the mountains and then we were in a hot springs and someone was passing around a drink and everybody was super thirsty. And we were like sitting in this hot springs. We had backpacked up there. And um, I remember having a sip and like spitting it out because it was orange juice, but they had put vodka in it. So it was like a uh, like gosh the orange juice got ruined oh my goodness and so we didn't really I mean I didn't get drunk or anything but it was like very much like yeah that was just very it was totally normal for to pass it to the 11 and 12 year olds in the oh that's cute that's fun that's you know whatever which is just interesting yeah it's it it is interesting how we've given I guess we've just given alcohol such a pass of yeah which is crazy to think about how that could have happened considering I don't know. It's almost like we have this, this binary view. Like there's this, this problem culture that everybody's well aware of, but then we don't separate any of the um, regular drinking. Like it's, it's kind of two separate worlds that we yeah. were allowed to actually be under the same umbrella of getting drunk. Right. it's like really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting as well, because the other thing that I, I forgot to say was that um, my body really started talking to me. 
Um, because as I was getting healthier and as I was working out, when I would go on these health spurts of not drinking for three months, and then I would have even one glass, I actually ended up, I fainted like three times. So one time I was on a plane, I was getting off the plane and I was waiting for my Uber and I just had like a glass of wine in the, uh, on the plane. And as I was waiting for my Uber, um, I just, I just fainted. I just passed out. I got a concussion. Oh, wow. um, and then another time I had gone on three months without drinking and I went to this concert and it was really hot. I mean, it was also really hot in the, in the concert hall, but then I had a cocktail right afterwards and I just fainted right in the bar as well. And then this past summer, um, the same thing happened where we had the, the canicule, which is the, the heat wave that happened in Paris. It was like 110, 115 degrees. It was insane. Um, and I had one glass of wine and I fainted again. So it was like, my body was just, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> you're trying to get healthy. You're trying to get clean. And, uh, it's incredible. Our bodies are such, you know, such wisdom inside of them. And we just need to, if we, if we listen to them more often, imagine how much wiser and better off we would be. <laughs> Oh, it's so true. It's so true. And, you know, I, when this dawned on me for the first time, I like, I feel like I had to take two or three days to really sit with it and be like, is that real? But basically it's the idea that, you know, puking is your body's way of saving your life in with drinking. And it was like, there's so many jokes about it. Like, oh, worshiping the porcelain gods. And, um, you know, it was just part of the night. The night was so good. I threw up like, uh, I remember being in a, this is an, an embarrassing story, but it was, it was, for I some reason, I, I had this like marriage of, because I was in this international job of, so you could probably super relate, but of different cultures coming together in a certain country. And then all of us bringing our most uh, rowdy selves, right? So we were in London, but it happened to be Australia day and we were with all the Australians. So we're with all these Brits and all these Australians at a pub. And just, I think we, everybody said, let's meet there at 10 in the morning. And we left, I think 12 hours later. And I got in the car and I threw up in the b fancy black you know, taxi cab. And it was just totally a mess. And I had to pay like 155, pound fine and he was really mad and all this stuff and it was super drama one of those moments but I remember it just being such a joke like oh my gosh Annie like way to go like it was just such a joke it got, like I got you know it was like being part of the whole gang now you know she's really part of it man she really showed up the American girl she puked in the cab like you know all this stuff and um and just when I realized like wow that's your body like saying we're going to die <laughs> Like die, die, if like finito, if we don't get this out of your system and um, it's terrifying. And then we just, it's just a joke. It's like, how, how is that possible? But to your point, like your body is just like, I'm trying to do everything I can here, woman, keep you alive, keep you healthy. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's interesting, the competitiveness that you're talking about. I mean, um, I remember especially the Brits being like, Americans can't drink. You know, it's like, you guys don't know how to drink. And then that became like, well, let me watch me. <laughs> <laughs> totally. 
<laughs> so it's like, let's see how much I can drink with you, um, which is completely ridiculous um, because yeah, nobody ends up winning. And then, but then, but then, the, you know, it, the Brits did start kind of the dry January. Like that was, that was really started in England. Um, and I have a lot of friends who are starting to think like, stopping for that month and what does that do and if why are you stopping um and if you're just doing it just just to pr it feels like it just becomes something that you can just prove yeah it's like you know um see i i stopped for a month therefore like i'm good right um and i was actually always opposite because i was like why would i want to stop drinking in january it's like the worst month in the entire calendar year like <laughs> i'm gonna stop drinking like in February or March, but like January, it was just an excuse for me to drink more. Um, Cause I was, I was like, this is depressing. So I'm going to keep, keep drinking. And that, that never works obviously. Cause then you just get more depressed, but um, yeah. I, I, yeah, go ahead. No, you go. I want to hear what you're <laughs> going to say. Cause I'm going to remember what I was going to say. <laughs> okay. Well, I was, I was kind of going to, I was kind of going to go on the other side of it. Like the one thing I have, you know, one of my other main reasons for really deciding to stop is because I really wanted, as I've, so I, I quit the New York Times last year and I got into filmmaking and I was finding that so many emotions are coming up as I'm creating this art and um, especially going into people's lives because I'm doing like a documentary and then um, I actually did a short film on female rage uh, and exploring that topic brought up a lot as you can imagine, a lot of emotions, um, which made me want to drink more kind of across the, across the entire year. And as I had left my full-time job, um, I found that it was much easier to start drinking, not, not having those confines of nine to five, you know, I was able to kind of start drinking earlier or, and so I was pushing the boundaries a little bit more, but the biggest reason was really, it was like, I was really noticing that I was starting to numb myself with the alcohol. And I probably, I mean, honestly, I'd probably always been doing that, but it became just a lot clearer in this new world that I was in. And I realized that I, I really, my decision, one of my biggest decisions to quit was really based around the fact that I wanted to, um, I wanted to feel all the emotions. Now that's definitely been two-sided and you know, I have certainly been feeling all the emotions <laughs> and it's, it can be really, really scary, but I also know that the only way to kind of get over to, to heal, to continue to heal is to feel them all. Um, so, so yeah, I guess on the flip side, that's, that's what I was going to say is that it, it, it is scary. And I think it does take a lot of bravery, especially in this world to, to quit, but um, yeah. It's so good because so a few things there, like first on the emotions, um, you know, it, it's interesting because there's a lot of things that, you know, my work, this naked mind, where I take the reason you're drinking and I kind of say, no, actually scientifically it doesn't work. It does this instead, right? So if, if we think about stress relief, right, it doesn't actually do that. It actually does the opposite. If we think about, um, you know, really making us happier, it actually does the opposite because it reduces our ability to feel pleasure and, and naturally. And so those things are so easy, but then when we come to, but I want to, I want something to numb me. No, it actually does that. And, and that can be really tough for people, right? Like if 
I mean, they used to use it like as an anesthetic in surgery before they realized it was super toxic and found safer things to use. Mm. And so it does numb us. And so it's like this thing of, well, how do I combat that? And I think it isn't about reframing what alcohol does. It's about accepting it, but then reframing what emotions are, which you've just done really beautifully in terms of like emotions are, you know, they're how our body talks to us. They're, you know, the chemical production of our mind in showing and guiding us where we should and shouldn't be and, and evolving us really and growing us and showing us what's next for us. And so it's like, it's like you have this beautiful GPS, this beautiful map of like, here's the path, here's the way you should go. Here's, here's the direction. Let me keep you in the beautiful areas and out of the deep, scary forests. And, and here it is. And then I'm just going to turn that off and throw that whole map out the window because the map is going to take me like, you know, it's, it's not going to be the easiest road, but, but it doesn't make the road any less easy. <laughs> You're still on the path. And guess what? You can only reasonably be drunk a certain number of hours per day right? So you can only reasonably be numb a certain number of hours per day. And then if you're going to hold down a job or drive around or do anything else in your life besides sitting in your room drinking, which we, I think we all agree that doesn't sound like fun, um, 24-7, like you, you can't numb it all the time. So then you're on the path anyway, but you don't have the map <laughs> because you've just numbed them. So now you find yourself in these deep, scary forests and then it is a self-perpetuating thing to follow my analogy all the way is like, cause then you're in the deep scary forest. So now you need to numb even more cause you're in the scary forest. Right. And, and so alcohol, it does that thing. And I think that's, that's a really interesting thing, but it's about thinking about how do I, how do I want my life to be? You know, do I want to live it awake? Um, I like recently, I think I saw a quote, I think it was from Glennon Doyle and it was, she might've been quoting somebody else. So I, just don't want to give credit wrong, but basically the idea of the quote was um, that grief is the admission for love. Like it's, it's saying, I experienced this, I had this, you know, and like the pain, like without the contrast, without the up and the down, we wouldn't have it. You know, if it was our wedding day every single day or the day we won the lottery every single day, or the, you know, the euphoria of whatever you want to falling in love every single day, like we wouldn't physically be able to handle it. The brain would actually turn that down that emotion too, because it just wouldn't be good for us. We'd be out of balance, but also you wouldn't, you wouldn't love it as much, you know, it's just this law of diminishing returns. And so allowing for all of the good and all of the bad and, and saying, I'm going to consciously take this escape button and put it outside my life. It's not going to be in my life anymore. Are there going to be times when I want to push it? Absolutely. But I've made a decision that it's not in my life. And when I get through those times I want to push it, that's what real courage is. Because courage isn't taking the fear and pouring some alcohol on it so you don't feel it. Courage is feeling the fear, sitting in the fear. You know, we think courage is a super sexy thing, like, ooh, courageous. But courage feels crappy because it's like literally feeling it all and sitting in it anyway. So I think that's I, I really like how you've reframed that for yourself because what you just said, I, I feel like is um, one, of the, one of the deepest keys you have to accept and realize in order to be really successful. Well, I mean, it's kind of ironic, like us talking today because, well, I, I, I said that I was, I was starting to date a guy who would, um, neither of us drank and that's true, but actually last night, um, 
realized that it wasn't going to work. And so I actually did go into this really deep, honestly, I don't even know if it was about him and it doesn't matter, but I went into this really deep despair and I felt this horrifying fear and like cry one of those like deep guttural cries, you know, that like when you're bent over and like you can't stop. And, like, and I honestly, I don't think I've had that type of cry in years. And I wonder how long it's been building up to that. And, and it was scary. And I, and I must admit, like, it, it took me to dark places. Um, and I feel like this release today that I don't know that I would have felt that probably would have just been postponed until God knows what would have happened, you know, like how months or years from now um and i think that's the scariest part about the numbing is that it, you're, you're right like you still have to live your life but it in some ways it is just postponing everything and imagine like now i feel like i like pushed through, well i shouldn't say push through because i i don't you allowed like, yes allowed more feminine energy um <laughs> i allowed it to come through me and um and actually now I feel like kind of excited for what's next. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's the release that was, I mean, I'm sure there'll be more, but. <laughs> so, so beautiful because in those moments, like they do, they feel like they stretch us and take us to the very edges of what's possible for us to experience as a human. Like that type of just guttural, like animalistic grief. But we've been conditioned in our society not to feel that, not even to feel that at death in Western society, like we're supposed to sit there primly in our black, whereas like in the ancient societies, they'd be ripping their clothes and screaming for days. And it was a seven day, like ritualistic morning of screaming and yelling and crying and, and all of these things. And maybe it wasn't seven days. I don't know if that's exactly right, but I know it was a period. It was a morning period. And, um, and now we're like, we take it and we, no wonder we drink. We like stuff it and stuff it and stuff it and stuff it. And so this bubbling thing is existing in us and helping all of the time it's there. It's just like this low grade thing. It's like, um, you know, when you have a huge air conditioner on in the background and then it goes off and you're like, huh, wow. I didn't even know it wasn't silent until now I feel the silence and I feel so much peace and I feel so much wholeness in this. And we have that. And like alcohol is like this tiny little thing that numbs it a little bit, but it doesn't take it away. And in fact, it, it prevents those really deep releases because trust me when I tell you that that weepy cryy thing that happens when you get too drunk, it's not the same level of like emotional and spiritual purification and cleansing and release and relief because you're not actually processing. You're not consciously present enough to process what's happening in your body. Your body's saying, I need this. If, if you're, you know, getting drunk and getting weepy and sad and crying, you're like, there's something there and your body's trying to deal with it, but, but you're not conscious enough to actually have the entire experience and to bring it together so that it actually heals you and serves you. And I see it with my kids because kids haven't been conditioned not to feel the ups and downs, right? And so I have a two-year-old daughter and she um, 
oh my gosh, who knows what it was the other day, but as usual, throw herself on the floor, temper tantrum, hysterical crying, her face is red, everything's going wrong in the world. She hates everybody and everything, doesn't, you know, whatever. And then she's done. And she gets up and walks over and starts playing like nothing. Like she's so done. Like it's gone. Like she's allowed it and then she's done. And like kids are so good at that when they're allowed, by the way, because you allow her. (laughs) Right. Because how many parents are like, no, no, no. Oh my God. My kid, like no temper tensions are bad. No, no, no. It's, it's part of it. Is it convenient if it happens in target? Certainly not. But (laughs) personally, but um, yeah, it's, it's, I love that what we're talking about because it's so, it's so true and it's so profound. Um, It's great. Yeah. No. And I, and it's interesting as well, because as I was um, drinking, it's like the anxiety, it also increased my, and I've read a lot of your research that you've done as well on anxiety levels and um, I actually, I didn't get on a plane at one point last year because I, I had had a couple of drinks before I got on and that was enough to just increase level of anxiety and the thoughts in my head to the point where like, I mean, who knows if, you know, if I, my gut instinct would have been the same if I had, hadn't been drinking, I, I don't know, but all I know is that my anxiety level at that point was so high that I couldn't get on the plane and I didn't get on the plane. And then the next morning, um, I was supposed to be in Paris. I was actually flying back from, from the States. And I got an email that I had this huge meeting with this like big producer in Paris that, cause I had this window that I have time that I was just going to be back for a few days. And so I had to like reschedule and like lost, you know, however much money on the, on the airfare and rebooked it and got on the plane like that day. But it was just another example of like, you know, alcohol isn't helping. (laughs) It's not helping my career, it's not helping my relationships, not helping my emotional um, compass, you know, it's, it's, it's not helping. And so there's just been sign after sign after sign and yeah. And it's interesting now that I, I actually put on my dating profile that um, I am not drinking. And because that was the hardest thing was going on dates with people and then feeling like, feeling like you're a freak. Um, and I, I've been actually amazed at how many people have gotten in touch and be like, yeah, I'm not drinking either. Or I stopped drinking. And it's kind of opened up this whole new world of, you know, uh, men that, it wasn't that wasn't about I thought and what a nice filter too because you're like well yeah maybe and I think so this is kind of what I was going to touch on earlier and it it fits perfectly here is Mm. what needs to happen in my opinion um (laughs) not that I'm very opinionated but we need to stop looking at this like it's an addiction conversation because for most people it's not right for most people it is a you know just drinking more than is comfortable more than i want to but can stop for 30 days if you can stop for 30 days if you're doing dry january if you're doing it to prove to yourself you are proving to yourself that you're not you know um you don't fit the clinical definition of addiction to alcohol because you can by theory stop without assistance right you're not going into delirium tremens you're not having these withdrawal symptoms and um 
And so, but, but the conversation we're having around alcohol is still an addiction conversation. And for me, like what's so refreshing about you posting that on your dating app and then getting this whole pool of men opening up is because there's this underground conversation happening. Right. And that's like, it's a wellness conversation. It's a health conversation. It's a, it's a, like being awake to my life conversation. And, you know, that is just really so awesome. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And the thing that there are like, cause the thing that there are other men that are, um, that are that aware or yeah, I mean, there's so many levels like that aren't just trying to numb themselves as well. And that aren't, you know, that yeah, are interested in other things and that we can talk, we can, cause that was my biggest fear was like, I, I didn't know how to date and not get drunk with the person and break the ice. And then, and it's amazing how many people, how many friends as well, you start kind of realizing that they were only fun when you drank and, you know, and things like that and how it's, it, it just shifts and changes. I've actually been pretty amazed at how many friends have been really supportive about it, um, which is, and in some ways it inspires them as well, yeah. you know? Yeah. My, um, you know, my friends definitely look different than they did six years ago. I think that it was twofold. It was definitely like people who we just didn't really have a lot in common with once the alcohol was taken away. Um, and then also the people who we still hang out with a lot. I mean, gosh, I don't remember even the people who still drink occasionally. I don't remember the last time I saw them drink. Like the, the drinking in my close-knit circle of friends has just so drastically reduced because mm -hmm. it is that freedom or permission where one people one person's like because not everybody is wanting to get drunk all the time and so i so many people are like oh my gosh thank goodness i didn't want to have a hangover tomorrow night either but i was just psyching myself up for it because that's what we always do together and so i'm super stoked that you just ordered an iced tea or whatever the case is and it's just funny because we do have this very intense perception of just keeping up with the joneses when it comes to alcohol right yeah yeah, definitely. I mean, that that was my biggest fear. And that's why I don't, I don't think over the years it stuck with me was because I always, the people pleasing was so strong and the wanting to not make other people feel uncomfortable, like wanting them. I mean, I, honestly, I think that was probably the biggest reason I got so drunk was because I wanted people to feel comfortable, which is like so ridiculous. Um, but yeah, but so so telling of like the culture and and not really of me, but of of uh, well, and of me and and, uh, and everybody else. But um, but yeah. So um, I'm gonna ask you the question that I always ask, kind of at the end here. But if you were gonna go back to Megan, who was um, drinking, and you were just gonna tell her kind of about what her life looks like now, what would you tell her? Oh gosh, I would I would tell her that the anxiety um that that she felt going out in public that she was enough without the alcohol that um just showing up as herself was all she needed and she didn't need to fit in with alcohol or um or be anything other than her raw, true self, and that that in and of itself would be inspiring to others. I love that so much. So good. Mm -hmm. So good. And it is so inspiring. I mean, that's like we do we inspire each other so much when we're not putting up 
pretense or trying to, um, I mean, vulnerability is like, I think Brene Brown says, and it's just yeah. the truth. It's like the great connector, right? That you just show up as our authentic selves. It's awesome. In this world we need, where we need so much of that, it's, it's like we are the warriors, you know, and it's, they need us and we need to, yeah, I, I mean, at this point, I'm not, I'm not going back and I, I'm just so grateful for you and all the work that you do and um, the communities you've built, uh, the Facebook groups, you know, the alcohol experiments, it's, it's really amazing. So thank you for everything. Oh, you're so welcome. I um, was just at, like, just randomly saw this picture and it was a bunch of, of, traffic signs and, and they were all stacked on each other and they basically say like if there is to be peace in the world there must be peace in the nations if there's be, to be peace in the nations there must be peace in the cities if there's to be peace in the cities there must be peace between neighbors if there's to be peace between neighbors there must be peace in the home if there's to be peace in the home there must be peace in the heart and i don't think that the cognitive dissonance and the internal battle that we fight when we are drinking and we are drinking and it isn't sitting with what we know is truest for us or what we know is best for us or what we know in our heart is our most honest path that we can have peace, you know? And so how can we expect there to be peace in the world when we're like, you know, in such a battle inside and not saying that, you yeah. know, alcohol, this one domino is the thing that's going to be bring world peace or anything like that. But just knowing for me that that internal fight of, both wanting to drink more and wanting to drink less at the same time, you know, really destroyed me at like a soul level. And so you know, being able to be whole inside, it, it does, it has such a ripple effect into your home, into your neighborhood, into your family, and ultimately into the world. It's just awesome. Yeah. The cognitive distances, dissonance was the biggest thing for me. And that's that piece, like you said, is the, it's, for me, it's a freedom. It's, it's freedom. And that's what I've been looking for this whole time. So <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Megan. It's just been such a pleasure. And yeah. I hope you have a wonderful evening. Thanks for taking it late. And um, yeah. thank you for having me. And um, I look forward to hearing you more on the podcast. So awesome. <laughs> thanks. Right. Have a great day. All right. Bye. Bye. Are you ready for a deep dive and truly lasting change? If so, you might consider my intensive program. It's a nine-week self-led program that you can do in the complete comfort of your own home, and it will truly transform your relationship with alcohol. If you want to learn more about this, go to thisnakedmind.com forward slash intensive. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.